unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. For we can for strong for every intention that ever went wrong. Hello and welcome to the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'll be moderating today's conversation. I'm broadcasting from lovely Franklin Springs, Georgia in my lovely little office at Emmanuel College. And I'm joined today by Michael Farmer in Tallahassee, Florida. Say hello, Michael. Hello. And by David Grubbs, who is broadcasting from Athens, Georgia. David, do you want to say hey to us? Hello, all. And before we get into our conversation today, which will be about John Calvin, uh, we want to respond to CWC, the radio show. Uh, They were kind enough to talk about us a bit last week, and in fact, they referred to us as their partners in podcasting, which is pretty pretty cool, I think. They also said we were smarter than them, which uh, I think some of them figures may be inaccurate. Well, that's all right. I mean, you, you, Michael, have occasionally referred to me as the smartest person you know, to which I always reply, you need to meet more people. That's a common refrain around our house, that you're the smartest person we know. Oh, all right. Well, I, I, I still insist you need to go meet some more people, Michael. Now, but at any rate, mostly we're trying to make you crack under Sorry, the pressure. Sorry, if Victoria is saying that, then I think it has, you know, some merit. She's less <laughs> of a shameless kiss-up than I am. <laughs> no, she's one of the smartest people I know. Me too. All right, I'm sorry. Let's uh, let's get back on topic. uh, Last week, of course, our debut episode, uh, we got some really nice email from people, and in fact, from some people who we listen to and we enjoy. Uh, I got word, of course, from the CWC, the radio show people. Uh, I got word from Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity podcast. Uh, It looks like that we've got some very quality people listening to what we do, and so we thank everyone out there who's listening. I want to respond a little bit to some of the things that they said on CWC, the radio show, because they raised some really valid questions. Uh, First of all, they made the point and the valid point that we talked about Christian humanism last week. That was our governing topic. And one of the things that we did was we wanted to claim both Erasmus and Thomas Aquinas as part of our project. And I just wanted to speak to that a little bit because they have a point that one of the things about Renaissance humanists, those folks who came around in the 15th, 16th, to some extent, 17th centuries, Uh, one of their projects seems to have been to attack scholasticism, to attack those people who are using Aristotle and Christian theology. And I just want to address that briefly and then, you know, see if you guys want to add anything. Uh, I would say that certainly historically, the Renaissance humanists were opposed to speculative philosophy of the sort that Thomas Aquinas did. Uh, they were more interested in reconstructing ancient texts, uh, gleaning wisdom from the sources themselves, going back to the source, ad fontes, and they weren't all that interested in adding commentary. I think, though, that, you know, especially in the 19th century, as you get on to folks like GWF Hegel, Karl Marx, you really get a revival of that speculative philosophical tradition, a real concern with the nature of being. And I think that as Christians pick up that project, you know, especially with folks like uh, like the existentialists, like the folks that Michael concentrates on, I think that there is enough continuity there that we can claim uh, both Christian philosophers and Christian scholars of antiquity. I mean, what do you guys think 
is the category Christian humanism broad enough to invite all of those people in without everyone killing each other? I, I think it's broad enough. I don't know if there's a need to uh, create a category where they're not going to kill each other. Certainly, there should be room for debate and even argument in this schema. And I, I think last week we defined Christian humanism pretty broadly, which is to say we we defined it as a Christian who sees value in the humanities, which I think certainly applies to um, all of those all of those people. I think so. And David Grubbs, I mean, I you know, one of the things that I think we focused on last week is that there are intellectual movements in our own time, both among Christians and among uh, secularists or atheists or whatever you want to call them, uh, that are different enough from the broad category we call Christian humanism that we can claim both Erasmus and Aquinas, and those guys are similar enough to each other, different enough from Richard Dawkins on one hand and maybe Jerry Falwell on the other, that we can still consider them part of our camp in our context. I mean, is that fair enough to say, do you think, David? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that the distinction, the the finer distinctions between intellectual movements within, within Christendom, uh, the differences between those aren't as stark when you put them up against uh, intellectual movements that, you know, are not only within Christendom, but are uh, against it. So, you know, some some of those distinctions that, that seem very important between the scholastics and uh, Renaissance humanists like Erasmus don't look as stark when you put them up against uh, a Christopher Hitchens. Um, one little comment that I did want to make is while the Renaissance humanists seemed to uh, uh, undertook the project of recovering the classical past, uh, what you see in Aquinas and and scholastics like him is an attempt to to do what the thinkers in the past were doing to engage in the kind of thought that Aristotle, uh, you know, saw saw as the way to investigate a subject. Right, so, and what David's articulating much nice much more nicely than I did is you know what I meant by speculative philosophy actually advancing the project rather than simply conserving what had gone before. Go go ahead, David. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Right. So, so it's not exactly that Erasmus disagreed with the, you know, the classical, uh, the classical thinkers that, that, that Aquinas was using as models for his thought. Um, you know, the, the, you know, both, both Aquinas and Erasmus would have, would have agreed on a, on a respect for those classical thinkers. Uh, Erasmus just, thought that that maybe Aquinas had gone a little too far in his attempts to emulate them but you know I think Aquinas would definitely disagree he would have seen himself as working working with and extending their tradition and uh, Christianizing uh, the classical tradition as well which maybe that was something that the uh, the Renaissance humanists were humanists were complaining about as well all right well, thank you, David. And the other question that I wanted to address for just a moment that CWC raised, as we said, we're big CWC, the radio show fans here at the Christian Humanist. Uh, one of the questions they asked is, you know, what is that relationship between reason and faith? And my short answer to that is listen to about the next 25 episodes we do, and we might start <laughs> approaching an answer to that. Uh, do you guys want to attempt to encap encapsulate that question in a brief answer? Or no, I do not. On to Johnny Calvin. I, I do not want to do that. No. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> we, we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how that works. Yeah, we'll, we'll sum it up in 45 seconds, and it's uh, taken 
two thousand years of uh, Christianity to get to to us. So, and by the <laughs> way, all you Christian colleges out there who are listening, you need to hire David Grubbs, Michael, and Victoria Farmer. They will help you advance that project of relating faith to reason. Is that good, guys? Is that a good career plug for you? I may have to go back and delete that. All right, David. <laughs> da- David at least, uh, at least my part. Maybe we'll just leave David in. All right, fair enough. All right, on to today's topic. Uh, one of the things that we talked about when we were shooting around emails talking about the shape of today's show is that we didn't want this to become a polemical show. Uh, one of the things that I told David and Michael is that I have not read so much a paragraph of Jacob Arminius, uh, so I am not going to claim to be the Arminian in this discussion because I don't know enough about him. Uh, And as we continued the discussion, we came to realize that all three of us have a deep and abiding respect for John Calvin, uh, born in modern-day France, uh, of course, spent the most famous part of his career in the city of Geneva. All three of us have a complex and a conflicted relationship with his texts and with his legacy. And we wanted to spend today uh, not attacking Calvin and not defending Calvin, but rather articulating what sort of role John Calvin has played in our intellectual lives and trying to expand that a bit and saying, you know, what sorts of things can we see John Calvin doing in the larger framework of Christianity 500 years after his birth? Of course, this year, 2009, is his 500th birthday, John Calvin born in 1509, and a lot of people are doing a lot of books, a lot of blogs, a lot of podcasts, a lot of articles about John Calvin this year. We're just going to add one more today. And I want to start out uh, just talking a little bit about our personal experiences with Mr. Calvin. And David Grubbs, I'm going to go to you first. I mean, what was your first encounter with Calvin? Uh, What kinds of experiences have you had with Calvin since then? Uh, what's changed about the way you look at Mr. Calvin? Sure. I was born into the Southern Baptist Church. Um, The Southern Baptist Church has a fairly broad creed, I think, compared compared to some other denominations. I know know Southern Baptist uh, pastors who are pretty daggum reformed. Um, they're, they, they track along with Calvin up until he gets to the point of baptizing the babies. Um, but by and large, the Southern Baptist is dominated by, uh, uh, a, a kind of populist Arminianism. Um, one that doesn't necessarily delve back into, uh, the older Arminian traditions, but what, but what is, uh, I guess, more characterized by a knee-jerk rejection of uh, Calvinism. And that was my first encounter. In in sermons, Calvinism was this uh, hateful or snobbish and definitely anti-evangelistic kind of aberration. Um, You know, it it was mean and it was hateful, and of course we reject it. And if you're ever confronted by a Calvinist, all you have to do is pull out John 3.16 and point to the whosoever, and he'll, he'll be like a cross to a vampire. Um, uh, what changed my view was uh, years later, I went to, uh, went to Bible college, Southeastern Bible College, and I took a theology course that uh, laid out the historical views uh, on the you know the different the different realms of of uh, of theology, 
and interestingly enough, the the shift of my thinking began in in the area of sanctification, not of uh, conversion itself. All right, explain those terms real fast, then you can go on. Uh, sanctification as as the uh, the portion of the Christian life that has to do with uh, how how the Christian after conversion is is uh, being shaped by God to be more uh, to be in God's image. It's 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 Christianity is a, is always a tension between, and this is not me. This is however many pastors I've heard say this. It's a tension between the the already and the not yet. Um, and sanctification is that working out of what is not yet real about you, but is becoming real about you in, 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 in the Christian life as, uh, as you are gradually being shaped. And then ultimately, uh, you know, in your personal eschaton or the, the, uh, the global eschaton, uh, the, that God's end for us will be realized. But in the meantime, we're, we're in process. Um, Let's see. Back to this theology class. Um, in it, uh, we were introduced to the theology of anthropology, this, this, the theology about man, and hamartiology, theology about sin. What is sin? How did, what role does it play in our life? And when, when the position uh, found in Calvinism of total depravity was presented, um, I thought that it didn't just match the verses that I read, but it also, it matched my experience. Um, I'd been raised in a subset of fundamentalism that tended to be really legalistic. They tended to focus on uh, the disciplines of being holy. And I'd tried all of those disciplines and they hadn't worked. You know, I'd tried, I'd tried the methods. Um, and so when I was introduced to the notion of, of total depravity um, and the bondage of the will that comes along with that little nod to Luther, um, it was actually kind of freeing because it was, you know, if you can imagine Sisyphus pushing up the, pushing the boulder up the hill, except every time he genuinely thinks that this time he's going to be able to pull it off. And then somebody walks up and informs him, um, you know, you, you realize that this is impossible, right? You're, you're never going to do it. <laughs> and that was what uh, total depravity was for me. Um, it, it, it was finally be, you know, being able to say, look, I can't be good under my own steam. Uh, fortunately, the, the class didn't end there, um, but it kept on going with the presentation, you know, presentations of not only the T, but the U, the I, and, uh, well, the L and the I and the P as well. Um, and they seem to present the, uh, the solution for what total depravity, uh, had, had presented in my life. All right. So uh, let me yeah. let me stop you there because you've you've just dropped about thirteen terms. We're going to spend the rest of the podcast defining and talking about. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I, I, I want to kick it over to Michael Farmer for a moment. Uh, Michael, when was your first experience with Calvin? Uh, what did you make of him, and what's changed since then? 
Well, like David, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and um, like David, my church wasn't particularly affiliated with Calvinism. But I remember my youth group was on a mission trip one summer, and I was feeling depressed and fatalistic. So I declared myself a Calvinist without knowing really anything about it. I said, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter what I do, it's all predestined, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Really a, a great big pity party. And I got called on the carpet for it. And I didn't get called on the carpet because I was a quote-unquote Calvinist, but because I didn't understand the doctrine at all, and I was completely misrepresenting it. Um, I remember the music minister who led our our mission trips told me that he would sit down and explain, this was a pr pretty severe tone of voice, he'd sit down and explain to me the doctrine I think I know so well. <laughs> wow. Yep. So um, I kind of gave it up at that point, but uh, then, then I went to Christian College, to Cole Falls College, um, which is a Christian and Missionary Alliance school, um, and if you don't know the Christian and Missionary Alliance, they are pretty heavily, I believe, affiliated with the Assembly of God. So not, not what you would associate with Calvinism, but for whatever reason, the, the school was virtually controlled by Calvinist Bible professors. Um, so there were a lot of Calvinist students, and this was pretty much the heavy debate around campus. Well, I never really thought much about it until I started dating this girl um, who told me at the end of the relationship that God meant for us not to be together. Oh, I love that line. I do, too. Um, it was, you know, it's pretty insulting. But looking back, I'm now more or less a Calvinist. Uh, you know, she was right. That, that, that's what it was. I, I, I believe I was uh, meant to meet and marry my wife, and so uh, this relationship really wasn't meant to be. But it's it's really not a very nice thing to tell anybody. It kind of takes the uh, <laughs> t takes your own responsibility out of the. Uh, out of the I was going to say theology aside. I, I think we can make it the official position of the Christian Humanist podcast that that line doesn't carry any water. That's true. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll go along with that. Yeah, I, I even as a Calvinist, can... how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> because it didn't I, I happen, think, I right? Think we can make our first ex cathedra pronouncement here that that line doesn't go. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope of the Christian Humanist Podcast has spoken. <laughs> Although I'm wearing the crown on Skype, so yes, that's true. You're the Pope, and I'm the King. We'll figure out what David is later. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, yeah. the the most influential thing I heard at TFC in terms of Calvinism, I, I was in a, um, I think it was a 17th century literature class taught by the head of the English department, Don Williams, who is about a 12-point Calvinist. Um, and we were debating predestination for, you know, I guess the 17th century was just full of Puritans. Um, so I trotted out this old argument, um, just because God knows what's going to happen doesn't mean he makes it happen. You, you've both heard this, I'm sure. Oh, certainly. That well, Williams looks right at me. Atheist. Go ahead. <laughs> Williams looks right at me and says, um, until you take it back to the moment of creation. Um, in other words, if God knows everything that's going to happen, he knew that when he created the universe, and he knew that everything would happen the way it happens. Thus, he de facto, de facto makes it happen because he chooses to create a universe in which he knows all these things will happen. It's kind of a complicated argument. Um, but it makes it makes sense to me, and I've never found a way to make it not make sense. So I don't see any way around predestination, except um, maybe something like open theism. Right. Well, as you can see, listeners, or as you can hear, I guess, since we're on a podcast, you ask someone a personal question about Calvin, and pretty quickly you get into intellectual debates. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's but, interesting but, that both David and I seem to be Calvinists for mostly philosophical reasons, not emotional reasons. And I mean, I'm a Christian existentialist, so I think pretty much everybody believes in God because of some need um, in them. 
rather than by logical argument. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a hypocrite here. Oh no no no! I think I think that works. Well, I mean that that brings us to I mean our next topic. I mean, would you guys both call yourselves Calvinists in some sense? And we'll go to Michael Farmer first. I should call out who's going to talk next. I would. Um, I, I would. I haven't read all of Calvin. I've read the first three books of the Institutes. Um, my church in Athens had a small group that was going through the entire thing, but I got behind when I was writing papers at the end of last semester, and I just never caught up, so I had to give it up. So I may have missed something in the last half of that book that's going to um, completely turn me off to Calvinism, but I don't think so. All right, and David Grubbs, I mean, uh, to what extent and in what ways would you say you are or are not a Calvinist? I would say that I was a Calvinist to the degree that would have been meaningful in the church that, you know, Calvinism was preached against. Um, you know, I, I was, I, yeah, I was first introduced to Calvinism as, as the two, the, the tulip and acronym. And that was, I, that was what I've accepted. I mean, since then, you know, I, I haven't read the institutes all the way through. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lousy Calvinist in that regard, but, you know, as I've, you know, sort of read at it in the, ter- in the course of other projects, um, I've come to a greater appreciation of, of him as, as a writer, as a thinker, as someone who, you know, who works with scripture. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess if, if I was good, if I was to describe my Calvinism, it would be in that, in that sense that people always say, well, that's not really Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> nice. okay. Yeah. You, you know, but, but to me, to, to me that it, it is. So, um, but you think yeah. you've got it bad, David. I went to a PCUSA church. The, uh, the other denominations don't even consider us reformed. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, you know, just to clarify, Michael, uh, go ahead and say for a minute what that adjective reformed means in terms of Calvin. Oh, I really, uh, I really am not quite sure, except that there's a list um, somewhere, and I don't know who put it out or who decided, but there's a list of reformed denominations. And, oh, is there um, really? I never knew that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, the PCUSA is not considered reformed, according to this list. Um, my PCUSA church was, uh, for the most part, very conservative, um, not like some of the ones I visited down here in, in Tallahassee. But uh, yeah, so I mean, technically, since my membership is still at PCUSA, I'm a Calvinist who's not reformed. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let, let me take a swing at the at, at the biography question. Then we'll all three of us launch into some more substance type questions. I, I actually encountered Calvin before I converted to Christianity. Uh, I thought that it was a monstrous doctrine. Uh, and, I, and actually, after I converted, I continued thinking so. Uh, you know, the term that Michael referred to earlier, open theism, this belief that the structure of reality, uh, the way that God created the universe, is itself an open structure rather than an open and cl- rather than a closed structure. And we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about substantive questions of predestination. That tends to be philosophically what's most compelling to me. I tend not to be a Calvinist or a Boethian. I don't call myself either of those, uh, you know, which we'll talk a little bit later about those questions, as I said. But uh, one of the things about Calvin in my own life is because my own scholarly interests uh, and my own research projects have tended towards 16th and 17th century literary texts, I've actually done a fair bit of scholarly work with Calvin. Uh, I've written papers using his commentaries on Genesis, 
I've dipped into all sorts of parts of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I've written about his relationships with, among other people, John Milton, George Herbert, William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe. Uh, so I have, you know, I, I don't want to attribute any cause and effect thing to this, but, you know, I have made myself really quite familiar with the text of Calvin over the years, uh, but still remain unconvinced that that's a, a theology that I want to claim as, you know, something governing my own intellectual life. So tell you what, let's go ahead and get on to some of the, some of the substance of this. First of all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, and one of the things we're very interested in is how do we bring in learning from traditions other than confessing Christians? And one of the places where Calvin is just utterly fascinating is his complex relationship to extra-biblical learning. Uh, as we mentioned briefly last time when we were talking about Calvin, in the Institutes themselves, Calvin quotes freely from Homer, from Cicero, from Seneca. He's obviously extremely well-versed in classical texts, and yet, uh, as we know from the history of Calvin's Geneva, we have an almost total elimination of sacred song. Uh, we have a reversion to almost entirely psalms being sung in worship. Uh, we have an almost an almost total purgation of images from the churches, so visual artwork uh, ceases to become part, part of congregational life in that context. Uh, David Grubbs, I mean, can you speak just a moment to this sort of tension between, I mean, the textual appropriation, but then in other ways, the utter purgation of, you know, classical learning? I think the place to begin is to look at uh, what the the genre of the Institute's uh, is um, I think generically it's it's an apology like the city of God it was written to Francis I when the Protestants in France were being uh, persecuted for for their uh, their descent um, from uh, from Roman Catholic doctrine and the uh, the king was was uh, was not uh, a fan <laughs> of the Protestants at that time so you know, there there's a letter at the beginning of the Institutes dedicating it to Francis the First, but also explaining to him that you know here is a uh, here is an explanation of what we Protestants believe uh, in order to persuade him uh, to be uh, to be tolerant. So if if we look at it as you know not as this isn't necessarily the book that Calvin would have written if he was going to sit down and write just a systematic theology. This is also an attempt to persuade. And because of that, he's appealing to authorities that his his audience respects. And when he when he differs with those authorities, he's very careful to defend his choices. Um, so I think on one hand, the the appeals to classical author, authors can be seen as as him knowing his source. But he also had, you know, he also had a humanist background and interested in himself. One of his first written works was a commentary on uh, Seneca, I believe. Um, uh, the Roman Stoic philosopher. Yes. Um, but if you if you look at the way he handles his texts, he seems to he seems to to balance the classical writers by, on one hand, 
saying well, all truth is God's truth, but on the other hand, looking at the you know what sin does to the human mind. Um, this uh, a, this is a quote from uh, from book two of uh, chapter two of the Institutes. Whenever we come upon these matters, that is the the arts and the sciences, the products of of the classical writers, and secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. And he had just been talking about the gift of reason. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to honor the Spirit of God. So so Calvin presents himself, or, or he he equips himself with this theology of human reason that allows him to endorse what they what they say that he agrees with and condemn what they say that he disagrees with um so he praises cicero for recognizing you know that religious instinct is innate in man but he rejects you know you know some of the theology that's in virgil and he, he even actually gets into a dialogue with uh, some of the characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey, critiquing their theology. Um, so I don't think he f- he doesn't completely condemn the the classical the classical writers. He's not Tertullian, but on the other hand, he doesn't feel compelled to synthesize Christianity with them. He doesn't see them as some kind of separate authority. For him, Scripture. Revelation is the context in which we read the classical writers, and we engage them on the terms of: Do they agree with what has with what revealed religion religion says? Do they disagree? And that that, that seems to be what he's modeling in in the institutes. If he was, I, I don't know if he was just teaching the classics to a class or whatever. I don't know that he would do it the same way, but the way he the way he's shaping it in the institutes is this. Is this kind of uh, engagement with writers and this and and the substance of what they say, not well, they're Greeks, we reject them, or they're Greeks, we respect them and we preserve them. Uh, All that's right. it. Michael Farmer, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's worth noting that Calvin's theology, and this is to kind of his credit and his detriment, um, his theology is seems to me primarily intellectual rather than sacramental. So I don't know how much use he sees in art in a in a church service or in in music in a church service because right. the the faith before you go farther, Michael, say a little bit about what you mean by that distinction: intellectual and sacramental. What do your terms mean for those of us fellow well, hosts th- who basically think of any Calvinist you've ever met and think about how that person <laughs> approaches doctrine and you've probably got the intellectual approach. Um, doctrine is key. It's what you believe. It's what you think. Um, kind of what you subscribe to. Um, sacramental is more uh, kinesthetic, if, if that's the right word for it. Um, it's, the, it's the point of view you find to um, a huge extent in Eastern Orthodoxy and in Roman Catholic versions of Christianity, and, and to a lesser extent in some of the higher church Protestant versions, um, Lutheranism and um, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, that sort of thing. Um, so the, the, the good way to look at it, um, a good example, is in the Eucharist, the, if you're Catholic, the 
the bread and the wine literally turn into the body of Christ. So the physical world becomes involved in this whole uh, this whole thing. Uh, in in Calvinism and in um, most forms of Christianity, kind of uh, below it in the in terms of liturgy and uh, structure, uh, the Baptist, Pentecostal, that that kind of thing, um, it's just a symbol. It's a little bit more than that for Calvin. It's a little more complicated than that, but it's it's more of a symbol, which is an an intellectual thing. So um, I, I I think so really it's in the what service you're no- of the mind rather than having importance in its own right. That's right. And so I wonder if what you're seeing is a a kind of move toward um, Platonism to to a certain extent in Calvin, in the sense that the the spiritual or the intellectual gets exalted, and the physical world is not so good. Hmm. And I mean, he's following St. Augustine in that. He, he loves St. Augustine. Oh, certainly. He quotes and, Augustine extensively. And, and it, it's hard to argue that Augustine doesn't at least have that tendency. Even, even oh, once oh, he... Oh, yeah. Augustine's got some Plato with him. Although, to his credit, and I say this as someone who loves and teaches Plato, uh, in The City of God, Augustine does eventually say that insofar as Plato rejects the body... Christians can't follow him that far on the road because we worship a God who created human beings and said it is very good. Well, so that's, I, I haven't I, read City of God. That's uh, that's good to know because the confessions um, seem so anti-physical to me. Oh, but sure. You know, the, City of God, of course, comes later in his career. So, I mean, I think he did, he has by that point taken on a more nuanced and a more biblical view of the human body. Um, and I would certainly never, I would certainly never call Calvin a man, a manichae. Um, but <laughs> I don't think, I, I think he definitely prizes the intellectual over the physical. And so I, I'm not sure he really sees the need for art. And of course his followers, um, the Puritans take this, um, re- really to an extreme, right? No stained glass windows, re- really no ornamentation of any kind in the churches, the three hour sermons. This is intellectual faith <laughs> at its highest point. Right. I d- I did find a paragraph in book one where he's talking about um, idolatry and not making graven images where he does talk about uh, there being a, a place for sculpture and, uh, and pictorial art. Um, but it's, it's a paragraph and he seems, <laughs> yeah. And he seems to be saying, yeah, this is a paragraph in a long book. Oh well, <laughs> right, and in right. a um, a section on idolatry that's like forty five pages. He he's yeah. just obsessed with idolatry. Yeah, I mean, he seems to think okay, historical. You know, you can paint historical events that can be instructive if it's just a portrait or a still life. That's kind of frivolous, you know. Just make sure that it's decent and everybody's got clothes on and he's fine with it. I mean, he, if if you look at his view of of art outside the church. He's pretty aggressively lowbrow, um, but I, I don't think he ever gets to the, to the point of, of 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 legislating this is what taste should be. He's he seems to kind of pair off, or to from from saying scripture condemns graven images, but then when he talks about art outside the church, he's like, this seems to be the case. I don't really see how this is useful, you know, but we do have sketches. Um, not by him, but by his students of Calvin during his lectures. Um, they're, you know, le- so that lect- is a venerable tradition then drawing your lecturer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Does he have yeah, the stink yeah. lines coming up from his head or <laughs> arrow, um, arrow through his head? 
they, they seem to focus on that big fur collar that on um, the robe that he wears and his big old beard. He looks he looks a lot like Gandalf, actually. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I it, it, at least I think we can say that that Calvin's Calvin's view of art in in context other than the church was relaxed enough that he didn't have a problem with students sketching him. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and and th- that's why I would connect this to his his intellectual theology. I, I I think it's in the context of of the church service that these things become a problem for him, or maybe not even a problem so much as not of interest. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to switch gears just a little bit, guys. I want to say, you know, since each of us has uh, a particular set of research interests as scholars, um, I'm I'm going to talk a couple minutes about my own experience with Calvin in the realm of my own research, and then I'm going to ask each of you to talk a bit about yours. Uh, As I said before, because I study Christopher Marlowe, John Milton, folks in the late 16th, early 17th century, or actually late 17th in the case of Milton, uh, you know, John Calvin is just a giant. He's an immense influence. And one of the things, this is actually a project I'm working on right now, uh, hopefully to work up into some sort of form that someone might want to print in a journal of some sort. Uh, But one of the things he does in book four of the Institutes is, in my opinion, he sort of pairs down a long and rich tradition of Christian engagement with political authority. And we're actually going to be discussing that relationship a couple episodes from now. But one of the things that I argue in that paper is that in minimalizing uh, what was traditionally the Christian just war position, which of course Christianity inherited from Cicero, which makes it especially strange that Calvin cuts it out. Uh, Calvin (laughs) makes room for a sort of politics that when you read it on its face in book four of the Institutes looks strikingly like Machiavelli's politics from the discourses and even from the prints sometimes. Uh, And so, I mean, you know, I don't think that that disqualifies Calvin from being a serious intellectual influence. Uh, As we'll talk about a little bit later, I think that some of the things Calvin does theologically, uh, the church really needed to hear and the church still needs to hear. Uh, But I do think that, you know, because in my own period, Calvin is the intellectual giant. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, compares him famously to uh, Karl Marx and the degree of influence Marx had over the 20th century. That's the sort of influence John Calvin had in the 16th. Uh, and that, you know, Calvinists in the 16th century were not grumpy old church ladies, but they were the revolutionaries of their time. Uh, but because he is the intellectual giant of my period, uh, you really can't do Marlowe studies without talking about Calvin. You really can't talk about John Milton without talking Calvin. David Grubbs, I want to talk to you because, you know, you are a scholar, uh, and I tagged along with you on this journey for a couple semesters, and you were gracious enough not to swat me. Uh, we read some Anglo-Saxon huh. texts together. Obviously, in a historical sense, there is no point of contact between Beowulf and John Calvin. I want to ask you, though, David Grubbs, I mean, is there any way in which the study of Calvin opens things up to you in those texts, helps you see certain things in the way that Anglo-Saxon Christianity Anglo-Saxon literature operates that you wouldn't be able to see if you weren't exposed to Calvin the way you have been. I would I would almost say that it's it's not so much that 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 we can uh, you know appropriate appropriate Calvin to look back at Old English as that sometimes it's hard to even see around him. 
Um, ah, okay. The the difficulty is that uh, Calvin, you know, because he he sits in he sits in your period. Okay, he sits in the in the Renaissance, but sure. that's also uh, the, the beginning of English interest in the uh, the old English past. Um, you know, one of the most I think interesting examples of this is when uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, priest, uh, maybe he was a bishop, we're, we're not real settled on who exactly he was. He was a, a homilist named Alfridge, and he was often cited by uh, English reformers as an Anglo-Saxon uh, predecessor because he rejected the uh, Immaculate Conception of Mary. He seems to have rejected uh, the literal transubstantiation in the Eucharist. And so in some ways uh, uh, anticipated uh, the reformed positions in England that were, that were being, you know, shaped a lot by what Calvin thought. So, you know, in, in the first scholarly studies of of anglo-saxon literature one of the earliest uses was to see how does this fit with reformed theology ah okay <laughs> now and the reason i ask you this david I, I should have set this up when i asked the question but i know that certain people among them our good friend matt lewis uh just absolutely detest the use of modern philosophers like Karl marx like feminist philosophy they say it is entirely invalid to take those systems and to use them as lenses through which to read Anglo-Saxon texts. I know mm -hmm. that just bugs the snot out of Matt Lewis. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, so I mean, what I hear you saying is that in the earliest days of Anglo-Saxon scholarship, this is exactly what people were using with John Calvin. They were reading the Anglo-Saxons through Calvin. Is this something that you try to get away from in your scholarship, or is it something that you think is a valid move? Well, I, I think it's... It, as as any as any effort to do scholarship, we're participating in a conversation that that began long before we jumped into it, and so you have to be aware of what forces have shaped it coming down to you. Um, and uh, an, another way in which uh, the the conversation has been shaped, even though Calvin, you know, Calvin was not involved in the Old English period in any way. It was you know it was a thousand years before he left. Right, we do grant that. Um, but one of the most heavy, um, Im important theological influences on the old English period was also the heaviest, most important theological influence on Calvin outside the Bible, which is Augustine. Augustine was huge in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, you know, we had you know, both Augustines. Yeah, but but okay. Granted, both Augustines, hippo, hippo, and sorry. Canterbury. I'm talking. Yes, go about, ahead. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm talking about the African, the the African uh, Augustine. Right, we're being multicultural here. Exactly, exactly. Um, Pelagius, um, Augustine's adversary in the whole free will versus uh, uh, captive will of man uh, debate, was uh, a monk from Britain. So. There, there's a good bit in uh, in Bede's ecclesiastical history of Anglo-Saxon England, the the history that Anglo-Saxons themselves looked at. There's a good bit about uh, Pelagianism and the efforts to combat that by uh, 
you know, champions of Augustinian thought, which, you know, August, uh, Augustine was the one who prevailed in that particular debate. Um, in fact, uh, St. Germanus was uh, one of the, one of the clerics who was sent to, you know, sent back to Britain to, you know, stamp out Pelagian fires. He gets several chapters in Bede. And I believe St. Germanus's feast day is next Tuesday. I think I looked that up. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So hooray for St. Germanus. Um, so it, it was, Augustine was a huge influence in Anglo-Saxon England. He, Augustine was also a huge influence on Calvin, but I think the fact that Calvin's views, that, that Calvinism is where Augustine's views on human sin it's, and its debilitating nature and also the God, God's predestining uh, of, of all human, uh, human, and de- uh, human destinies, of all that goes on in the universe, because that's mainly preserved in Calvin and not in, other, and not in some other traditions. It's hard for scholars these days to look at the Augustinian elements that crop up in Old English uh, old English works and not react to them as they would react to Calvinism. All right. So I, I think I I've read, I've read scholarship on, you know, the notions of, of, of fate and predestination in Anglo-Saxon England, where they seem to view it as simply fatalism and, you know, as kind of bad Calvin. Right <laughs> is it, is 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 the way that they seem to express it. Um, so you know, uh, I, I think still still the you know the modern glasses which have been you know our modern glasses have been polarized by Calvinism, and so depending on your view of him, it's hard to look back at the Augustinian bits of theology in in Anglo-Saxon England without reacting to them in much the same way that we react to Calvin. And I think being aware of that becomes very important. Okay. Well, shifting about 1,200 years in the future from King Alfred, uh, Michael Farmer, I mean, you do a lot with existential literature. Uh, I have to confess again to be a sort of fellow traveler, just as I dip my fingers into Anglo-Saxon literature with David. I read through Heidegger's Being in Time with you and enjoyed both the experience of the book and our lunches immensely. Well, and you uh, understood it more than I Heidegger, did. One of the things about Heidegger that I've noted is that, you know, his philosophy begins and to some extent ends with the nature of Dasein, the nature of human being considered as a structure. And one of the things that I note when I was thumbing through the institutes in preparation for today's show is that Calvin, unlike a lot of systematic theologians before him or after him, begins with a sort of structure of human existence. He says, you know, the sinful, corrupted human nature it has to be our starting point for thinking about God and the world. Um, talk for a few minutes, Michael, about connections between Calvin and existentialism. Talk about some radical departures between the two if you want. Uh, tell us some about how Calvin interacts with your scholarly world. Um, the radical departure should be obvious because Calvin... Um seems on the surface incompatible with existentialism because of the doctrine of predestination. Um, Karl Barth is the only major Christian existentialist from the Reformed tradition, 
And in the limited part I've read, I've read um, Church Dogmatics, a selection, and the humanity of God. Um, in in that those two works, he doesn't address the issue of predestination and free will that I can tell. So I'm still looking for a way to reconcile um, those those two things. But I do think you're onto something when you bring up Calvin's starting point um, of human existence, because he seems to fit in with the existentialist method. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre famously sums that method up as existence precedes essence. Um, in other words, no meaning to life is given to us a priori. And uh, that's how all the existentialists, even the Christian ones like uh, Bart and Kierkegaard and the Niebuhr brothers, that's how they all proceed in their investigations. They all start from the bottom and move up because ex- existence precedes essence. Um, but I'm not sure that Calvin, because he has that, such an emphasis on special revelation, I'm not sure he'd totally sign off on the method. Um but he does say early on in the Institutes, and I brought this up last week, that man can't know God without knowing himself, and he can't know himself without knowing God. Um, and that could suggest that life has to be lived before it can be understood, but I don't think Calvin would be particularly pleased with the notion that we encounter God primarily in the subjective reality of our own lives. Rather oh, than- sure, but when I hear that pair of sentences, though, Michael, I mean, I think of Heidegger's insistence that Dasein always exists in the world, and, you know, when Calvin sets up that dialectic between self and God. I mean, that seems at the very least analogous to what Heidegger's doing with Dasein and world. I mean, what do you think of that? That's right. It's a it's an, an insistence that um, man has to be defined by not man or not individual. Um, it he, he doesn't strike me as particularly Cartesian in that respect. There's no I think, therefore I am in Calvin. Um, there's more <laughs> I am, therefore I am. Huh. I wanted to talk a minute about the um, leap of faith, which is kind of the central tenet of Christian existentialism, the one everybody knows, um, comes from Kierkegaard, uh, who had never actually said leap of faith, which I point out every time I talk about it, because it drives me crazy when people say, uh, <laughs> in Kierkegaard's term, leap of faith, because he never said it, Kierkegaard's term is actually the teleological suspension of the ethical, which does not roll off the tongue quite as well. So, uh, I like Cal- leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. Um, as we've discussed, Calvin just loves St. Augustine, and um, he, he takes from Augustine the notion that you have to have faith, and, and then once you have that faith, you can understand things better. Anselm um, later says, faith-seeking understanding, but it's, a, it's an Augustinian idea as well. Um, and I think that provides something of a solution to the feedback loop that you get with general revelation. Um, You have to understand man to understand God. You have to understand God to understand man. So an appeal to special revelation to break that loop would require some sort of leap of faith in the Kierkegaardian mode. And, And I'd say at that point, Calvin and Christian existentialism are compatible. Um, you make the leap of faith in order to access a higher form of truth, but, um, you have to make the leap of faith to see that as truth. So, therefore, I, I would say that's a form of existence precedes essence. All right. Well, I'm still not to, w- but... sure what to do with predestination, though. Because, I mean, Calvin well, yeah, is yeah, not I mean, only... That, that's what we're going to get to next. I, oh, okay. You know, one of the things that my own professor, Dr. Craig Farmer of Milligan College, said is that it's really unfair historically that Calvin has become known as the predestination guy. Uh, he says that the central doctrine uh, of Calvin's corpus is the sovereignty of God not necessarily this particular bit of teaching called predestination. That said, I mean, that is probably the stumbling block for a good number of people when it comes to Calvin's teaching. Um, 
David Grubbs, I want to start with you. I mean, obviously, uh, we're running down uh, to the last few minutes of our podcast. We can't engage all of predestination in all of its glory. But say a few <laughs> words about that particular teaching. And when you're done, just go ahead and kick it straight over to Michael. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to get into you know, defense or offense, but I do think, um, you know, you, you point out the, the unfairness of Calvin being associated with it. I mean, he didn't write only about predestination. He wasn't the first one to defend the idea, but as in any other kind of controversy, you know, the point of contention becomes huge because that's what the argument's about. Um, battlefields become landmarks, not because they're interesting topography, because, but because that's where the fight was. Um, but still, you know, predestination is isn't insignificant, and I think that the most important thing that Calvin did uh, by stressing uh, predestination in places that he did as much as he did, and the fact that we continue to associate Calvin with it, I think that it makes us fight that battle in our own efforts to build our own theologies. You have to fight with Paul over Romans 9, and you have to wrestle with uh, what Jesus says in John 6, you know, and other passages. We can't just ignore them and make, you know, comfortable theology out of the bits of the Bible that we think are approachable. Um, I, I love this, uh, the bit in, in uh, the Narnia books, uh, the very first one, uh, when Mr. Beaver describes Aslan as uh, he's not safe, but he's good. And I think, in a, in a way, we have to we have to look at the Bible that way. It's not a safe book. It's not going to make us comfortable. Um, what it says is good, but sometimes sometimes it's going to make us feel unsafe. And I think that the most uh, the most important thing that Calvin uh, the, the most important role that Calvin plays in his association with predestination today is that it makes us continue to wrestle with those difficult passages of scripture and not be content with our our tame theologies that exclude the hard bits. All right, Michael. It's certainly a tough doctrine. I'm not sure I have um anything else to add from from David and from what I said earlier. But uh, I I totally get why it's a stumbling block for people because it can go one of two ways. It can um Predestination can either make you not worry because there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's no move you can make. This is something that happens to you at the will of God. Or it can make you really freaking nervous, right? Because it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't It doesn't matter how much you believe. You're predestined for one or the other. And the, the Puritans, again, take this to a, a sort of ridiculous extreme. If either of you, if any of our listeners have seen William Perkins' chart, it's this, you, you can find it online, um, it, it's this horrible chart that has two sides, um, the saved and the damned, and uh, there's this spot, I think it's in the middle, where the two things look exactly the same, because you just don't know. And and so that can I, be I, I really terrifying. Or Michael, really I love that our Christian existentialist is using the technical term really freaking nervous. <laughs> hey, I'm a 20th century I, guy. Yeah. Oh, all right, all right. No, we're in the 21st century. I love that he used the word horrible because that's the same word that Calvin uses in book four to describe the notion of, of, of a double predestination that the damned are also foreordained to damnation. He still says it's true, but he says that it's a horrible idea. 
Um, and I, I think sometimes we, we get the idea that, that Calvin's like a snidely whiplash, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, twirling his mustache while he, you know, casually damns people. But, um, he was make, also uncomfortable with it. Would that make Arminius Dudley do right? <laughs> it might. <laughs> I, again, I've not read so much as a par- paragraph of Jacob Arminius, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say one thing to this question. I mean, you know, one of the things, and David, I'm going to pick on you. If you want to respond to me, feel free. Sure. Uh, it's it's one of my own pet peeves as a non-Calvinist. Like I said, I don't call myself an Arminian because I don't know Arminius. Uh, one of the things about the predestination question is very often the debate comes down to the terms that you just used, that, you know, people who are not Calvinists are not Calvinists because we find it uncomfortable or unpleasant or not cuddly. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I would insist on as, you know, someone who tries to be honest intellectually is that I find predestination inadequate to the text of the Bible, uh, not necessarily because it makes me uncomfortable, because, but because the text seems to militate against it. Uh, so in other words, you know, I, I would be inclined against saying, you know, Calvinists are lazy and that's why they believe in predestination i i don't think that's true uh what i do think is that this is a hermeneutical question a question of interpreting the text and i mean david i mean i'll I'll go ahead and let you respond because i don't want to have the last word on this my site after all is hardly the last word look for it on google uh but i want to say that you know i would rather make this a question of interpreting text rather than psychoanalyzing our interlocutors Respond, David. <laughs> okay. Um, I would exclude you from the... <laughs> it's those other guys. <laughs> well, from the... Uh, all right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, wh- wh- whether this is fair or not, in many conversations that I've had with um, with people who have sim- who had similar church backgrounds to me, they didn't... They had never heard a sermon on Romans chapter nine or John six, it had never been approached in Sunday school. They didn't, they didn't even know the text was there. Um, I, uh, the first time, the first time my wife ever encountered Romans nine was when I read it aloud to her once and it reduced her to tears. She'd never heard it. And uh, I would say that you, you have, you have, taken on the text, you have wrestled with the angel and gotten what grace you have. (laughs) Um, But I I think so many, so many Christians have not um, because in, in, in churches where they don't profess it, what very often happens is that, is that they, they ignore the passages that can be seen as implying it. And I, 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 I like I, I like the honesty of someone who's going to say I I've read that passage and I disagree with your position and this is this is what I have to say than than the I would rather just pretend those verses aren't there. <laughs> All right, well I'll grant that David that I mean ignorance of the text is a travesty. All right, because we are winding down, we're down to our last few minutes. I'm going to send it around the horn one more time and briefly. Uh, we'll start with David, then go to Michael, and then I'll say my bit and close up the show. But David, uh, if you were to address 21st century 
evangelical Christianity in the year 2009 and say, this is the one thing that John Calvin has to remind you of that you have forgotten. What is that thing? Take about a minute and then send it over to Michael. I think the the thing that, yeah, just to to pick up the note that I've that I've been uh, already playing, um, I think what Calvin has to say to us today is that when we are when we are constructing our Christianities for ourselves, because ultimately everyone, you know, each each individual Christian decides what what their creed is going to be. Um, when when you're constructing your personal theology, you you need to be engaged with the text. That engagement may not look like Calvin's, and for a lot of people, it doesn't. But but you have to do it. And I think uh, that Calvin Calvin's Institutes, even if it may not model uh, the the doctrinal content of what of what all all people pondering Christianity will will arrive at. I do think that they should, they that they should be as as anchored in uh, the 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 scripture as as he is, uh, viewing it as as the authority, uh, seeking uh, seeking to understand its words, not you know not to begin with a tradition, look for such verses as justify tradition, and then cease to be curious about the text after that. All right, very good, Michael Farmer. One minute. What does Calvin have to remind us of? Total depravity. Absolutely. <laughs> that is the doctrine that the modern world has um, left behind to a frighteningly large extent and much to its detriment. If you forget that human beings are utterly depraved in every part of them, all of a sudden you come up with a lot of really bizarre theological and political viewpoints that bear no relation at all to anthropological reality. So, total depravity. Hey. If, if you agree with nothing else about Calvin, you need to agree with total depravity. Amen. If, what's that? <laughs> I said amen. <laughs> yeah, Nathan, amen I know you corner. agree with that as well because you said so last week. Yeah, I know, and you just stole my thunder. I... <laughs> I'm well, sorry I'm you uh, take my ideas my from me, uh, Nathan. I, I can't do anything about that. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, Calvin's... First of all, I'll, I'll take it in a different direction. I think that Calvin's working definition of sin as that which separates us from the divine uh, is a definition of sin that really needs to be central to the way that we think about our relationship to the world. Uh, I think that far too often, especially we moderns, uh, and this is on the left and the right, by the way, uh, the left gets convinced that through engineering domestic policy, uh, we can solve certain basic human problems that just aren't subject to solving. I think the right wing thinks that through military intervention, uh, we can fix other people's houses in ways that we just can't fix it. Or that the I free market will take care of it. Or that, yeah, the, yeah oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, if we're all just very selfish all at the same time, it'll all work out. Uh, <laughs> so what could go wrong? Uh, anyway, I. <laughs> Do you know that if everybody had a gun, nobody would ever get shot? Oh, heavens, don't, don't get me started. We're running out of minutes. But I think that John Calvin's fundamentally tragic view of the secular period, that period between Christ's ascension and Christ's return, is something that we moderns could definitely stand to remember. Well, at any rate, we are entirely out of minutes now. Uh, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast. Next week, David Grubbs is going to be our moderator. And our topic, David, correct me if I'm wrong, is going to be the patristics, the church fathers, 
and modern evangelicals' relationships to them. Is that right? Yeah, I figured if we're going to begin a, a wrestling with the, our our inheritance from from the past, uh, we'll, uh, beginning with Calvin is a good point, but uh, I think we need to go further back. So you know, we'll we'll wrestle a bit further. All right. Well, next week, as I said, David, we are our moderator. This week, I have been our moderator. I am Nathan Gilmore. Thank you for listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast today. Thank you, David. Thank you, Michael. If you'd like to email the Christian Humanist Podcast, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And for Michael Farmer and for David Grubbs, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. For strong, for every intention that ever went wrong, for short and for long.